Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. The Contrarians is brought to you by Smarks Like Us Clothing and Avnio Films. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter at JamesAlexMattis and at Avnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Yes, this is the main theme from Star Wars Episode 3. Why, you might ask? It's simple. It's the best film in the franchise. T-shirts, t-shirts, t-shirts. Hundreds of thousands of wrestling t-shirts, all for you to buy. Starring all of your favorite wrestlers. Daniel Bryan, Bret Hart goes to Montreal, some dead guy, the Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lanza, not Wyndham and Bradshaw. Wrestling! SmartsLikeUs.com, 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 selling you wrestling t-shirts. Also available, buttons, stickers, and kitty cats. Meow. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex and I am joined, as always, by my co-host Julio. Julio, how are you doing today? I am so angry, Alex. The only way I would be angrier is if I was a woman. Alright, well, for the second time here on The Contrarians, we're going back to the ring. Uh, we did Rocky before and this week we're joining the sport of boxing again for the 2004 alleged masterpiece, Million Dollar Baby, directed by Clint Eastwood and starring... Himself and Hillary Swank. Yes, a lot of praise for this movie. I'm not sure why. I think it might be uh, the the PC police thinking that oh well, it's a woman in the ring, so we automatically have to praise it and just be in awe of this. Mm-hmm. Or oh, it's Clint Eastwood, an old guy that's in his seventies, he's still making movies, so uh, we need, we need to reward this with a lot of praise. Or you know they look at it and they're like the lighting is so terrible in this we can barely see what's going on the entire time so it must mean it's really artsy and we have it to like it. It must be good. Yeah. yeah what we can see it must be must be awesome. Just a few examples from all over the internet. Kid Bowen from Hollywood.com says just when you think he should be retiring, Clean Eastwood throws another one-two punch. Jeez. Richard Carlos from Time Magazine says. Like Eastwood, it's a relic that dazzles you with its footwork, daring, and class. Both of these reviewers make a, a point of noting how old Eastwood is. <laughs> uh, and then, to close, somebody took it to heart. It doesn't have a name, it just, it's under total film, but they don't really name the, the writer. He or she said, With Mystic River, clean stare down loss and revenge. Here, he's made an elegic and beautifully measured film about the power of love. That's what Million Dollar Baby is about. Apparently, love. yeah, beautiful. I, I don't. We must have been watching different a different movie. Well, I dep- what What do you consider beautiful? What exactly you know gets your rocks off? Seeing women punching each other uh, in a ring. Maybe that's you know that's that's what got yeah, total film. Whoever they are, uh, <laughs> seeing Clint Eastwood euthanize his uh, foreshadowed daughter. I guess that's just that just beautiful. melts your heart. Yeah. Just... So Million Dollar Baby starts off at a boxing event. I'm not really sure where. Location and time will come into play numerous times throughout this, as far as confusing. It's a dreamscape. <laughs> it's a male boxing match that we're watching featuring Big Willie Little, who is the star pupil of Cutman and trainer Frankie Dunn, played by Clint Eastwood. Uh, right away, we get hit with the Morgan Freeman narration, so I think you know what you're in for immediately. Yeah, you know where you're going with the Morgan Freeman narration. That's the first lazy shortcut. Mm. It's like, why bother writing thoughtful, interesting narration and, and getting like a good actor when you can just get... I mean, by now, America, much like what happens to Maggie, the Hillary Swank character in this movie, America's been brainwashed by now into just knowing that if they hear Morgan Freeman's voice, then they're in a good movie, and whatever he's saying, it's... 
it's thoughtful and important. Uh, the Pavlovian response. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you start salivating when you hear Morgan Freeman's voice. So as this Willie Little fight is transpiring and, you know, Frankie's in the corner doing his thing, Hillary Swank just appears from the shadows atop the arena. She will not be the last person to just appear from shadows. She comes out with a big smile on her face and just, I guess, is just enjoying what she's watching. We're not really sure what she's enjoying, but we know that she is. Hillary Swank's smile is basically her co-star. <laughs> Hillary Swank and her smile. <laughs> Backstage after the fight, Frankie is celebrating his fighter's victory when Swank approaches him and introduces herself as Maggie Fitzgerald, and she says, I'm a fighter, and she <laughs> really wants to be trained by Frankie, and he just, right off the bat, I don't train girls. So again, we know where this is going. He's the hardened veteran who doesn't train girls, and she's just going to make him warm up to her. Yes, and and also like the audience. Basically, the movie will manipulate the audience into warming up to Clint Eastwood, despite his uh, prehistoric views on women and just how life should be lived. Ultimately, Frank is the hero, and the movie brainwashes Maggie into buying all his bullshit. We get an immediate insight into what kind of trainer and manager that Frankie is, as he turns down a, I believe it said it was the second or third proposed title fight for Big Willie. This obviously leads to some frustration between Willie and Frankie. It's Frankie says he's not ready for a title fight yet. Yeah, but we can read between the lines. Really, what happens is that Frankie doesn't want Big Willie to get too big. Mm -hmm. So, that that's just part of his strategy. It, the only way that he can keep this guy under his heel is to keep him from becoming a champion. That's clear, and that's just from the first couple of scenes of the movie. Outside the ring, we get an insight into Frankie Dunn as a man and a person and as a spiritual being. He's a very trying religious man. We see him just grilling and roasting his pastor, and it's not really explained why he has all this guff with the, the big G up in the sky, but it's apparent that he's <laughs> not too keen of it. It's really transparent how they, the movie pits him against the dumbest priest ever. He's, well, I mean, to be fair, it's also a really young priest. It's like this guy just got out of, like, a... Uh, uh, Priest college. <laughs> Priest college. Yeah. He, he barely made it. He passed with, like, C's. <laughs> he he loses his school really fast. Even though he knows that Eastwood is trying to push his buttons, he lets him mm -hmm. win anyway. And, and, you know, and he calls him school. a fucking pagan. Yes. He swears. <laughs> Was that the only F-bomb of the film we had? That would be funny if, like, the only F-bomb came from a priest. Cool. Uh, but, yeah, it's like, basically, you're setting him up as a straw man. You know, there's no no merit in getting that priest riled up because yeah. he's he's just young and he's dumb, obviously. So, so Eastwood's character comes across as the winner in this theological debate. Like, oh, this guy's the guy's asking like the real hard questions, but no, because it's it's almost like he was asking a child. You know, yeah. Of course, you're gonna win. So we go to the gym that Frankie runs called the Hit Pit, and right away we're introduced to. And I had seen this before. And I had forgotten about this somehow. A first and probably only gust of fresh cool air, and that is Jay Baruchel, to supply the comic relief. And even the comic relief gets pretty grim at some point. We're then introduced to Morgan Freeman's character, despite the fact that he's narrating, which leads to just a world of confusion at this point. Because is he real? Is he just like a spirit that's there and watches everything? How is he narrating this? I guess it's a dreamscape, so I think that... A lot of the, the inconsistencies in the movie can be explained by the fact that basically after the last thing that happens in the movie and before Morgan Freeman sits down to write that letter, I mm -hmm. think he just gets drunk. And then, you know, what we're seeing is this flood of memories that don't really mesh very well, but that are still like they have like a grain of truth in the center. Morgan Freeman's character is named Scrap. He was a former fighter. 
prize fighter himself and now is just like a gym a, he's the janitor pretty much i guess yes and there's this very toxic relationship between him and, and the eastwood character yeah that's also apparently mine for laughs but it's really if you're really paying attention it just it's just uncomfortable to watch there's serious racial under under and overtones on her yes thing. it was just it's it's just like this old white guy constantly demeaning and and being condescending to this old black guy and constantly reminding him of his position in life it just keeps telling him why don't you go clean the bathroom every time the freeman makes a mistake of trying to offer some helpful advice he just gets put in his place and just eastwood like owns him it's like hey yeah it's a shame that you never you never got a title fight huh <laughs> why don't you go unplug the toilet get some sawdust for that puke over there yeah it's, it's horrible it, 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 it happens all throughout the movie and you think that maybe they're building to like some sort of point where like Freeman will put his foot down mm-hmm. and be like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> Run this place without me. But no, it never really happens. One of the moments of putting him in his place, I guess, so to speak, we also get some just disgusting product placement as it's a commercial for Clorox bleach. As it's a commercial for a lot of things. <laughs> Morgan Freeman explains that Clorox just smells better. <laughs> and the grizzled old man Clint Eastwood tells him, bleach smells like bleach. Uh, it will not be the last time that Scrap plugs a product or two. As Scrap and Frankie are discussing the ins and outs of the gym up in Frankie's office, Scrap just looks out the window and sees that uh, Maggie, the Hillary Swank character, has just showed up and working on the heavy bag and asks, who's the girl? Clint Eastwood looks at her and says, Jesus Christ. And he finds out that she's paid six months' worth of her dues, so he will allow her to work out at the gym, but he just informs Scrap that he cannot coach her, that they don't want to encourage her at all. Right. But it's not even that, though. Because Eastwood keeps her around because she already paid, but also because, like, he likes to do with pretty much everybody except for his fighter. He likes coming by and just delivering some really nasty remarks about the way that she's practicing or the way that she's, you know, hitting the, the bag. So not only is he not helping her, but he's actually being an asshole to her. <laughs> and yet this is your hero. Within this five-minute stretch of time, when we're introduced to the Jay Baruchel character, he is a welterweight fighter, and he's calling out Tommy Hitman Hearns. We then go to Hilary Swank riding a bus that has a giant ad for The Apprentice on the side. Now, Tommy Hitman Hearns was around in the 80s, and The Apprentice was obviously a popular show in the mid-to-present 2000s. So, this is either just really, really lazy filmmaking and not spell-checking, so to speak, or they're just trying to fuck with us, or they don't know who Tommy Hearns is. It's just, it's lazy all around, and just, the whole timeline of this is just very confusing. There's also a theory about how uh, Quentin Tarantino wrote a draft of this movie, which eventually, they, they didn't go with that draft, and he just took it and it became Inglorious Bastards, which has its own separate timeline where Hitler died. So, I think that maybe that's what's, what we're seeing. This movie takes place in the timeline of Inglorious Bastards. So, still, that wouldn't make much sense. Well, yeah, it would have made sense if they explained it. Oh, okay. <laughs> It is lazy filmmaking, and it's taking place in the Glorious Bastards uh, timeline. Maggie Fitzgerald's just become a real gym rat, and, you know, it just continuously works the heavy bag. We find out that Scrap, Morgan Freeman's character, lives at the gym there. He has his own, like, little efficiency apartment built in, and begins coaching her and helping her, and... You know, it's like leaving the saucer of milk out for the stray cat. This is just going to encourage her to come back for more. I'll give props to the Freeman character for defying Eastwood. (laughs) Eastwood has been doing his best to put him down, and yet Freeman... This is his way of, like 
talking back to him. He can't do he it because, you know, he can't bite the hand that feeds him directly. So he just has to, you know, nibble on his shin, I guess. It's the next morning in the gym, and this gym is just packed with intense stereotypes. We have Anthony Mackie, who's the brash, trash-talking young black man. Michael Pena, who is... Being a disgrace to Mexicans <laughs> everywhere in this movie. He had the mustache. I was just shocked they didn't have a sombrero on him because he was just... Hey, <laughs> really? He uses that tone of voice. His English is terrible, and he's just—he's just playing second fiddle to the angry black man. Yes. So overall, no redeeming qualities for Michael Pena. I guess the only thing that you can say is that well, it was certainly his career, so it's not like he could—he didn't wield the power in Hollywood that he does now. And also the stereotype of the dumb country boy that Jay Bruchel plays. Of course, a bit too well, I might add. But they're all picking on Hillary Swank, you know, for being a girl because. That's the tone the movie's taken on so far. Well, it's like Eastwood is doing it, and Eastwood runs that, that place. Of course, they take after him. They pick on her as a relief from picking on Baruchel. Uh, what's his name? Danger, right? Danger, Danger, yeah. yeah. It's something that will... It's a plot that kind of goes under, and you forget about it for a while, and then it comes back on. But Danger is basically... A, a, be, he's paying his dues just to be bullied at the gym. The only person that's nice to him is Morgan Freeman. Even Eastwood is always looking for an excuse to kick him out, apparently. Which, again, it just paints a very disturbing portrayal of, of our male protagonist. He's this guy that's basically... The Baruchel character is worth pointing out because of how it pays off at the very end. He's being exploited. They're taking his money, whatever little money he has. Because I guess at some point they say that he's not paying dues because he doesn't even have uh, money for pants mm -hmm. or something. But even if you if you take away the financial aspect of it, they are encouraging these dumb dreams that he has. Yeah. There is no way that that kid will ever fight in the ring. There is no way that kid will ever even come close to winning a fight, even outside the ring. Yeah. But Freeman is just letting him believe that and indulge in this fantasy, and Eastwood is letting him as well. And that is a tiny subplot, but it also applies to what they do to the Hillary Swan character in, in the bigger picture. So it's that night, and we're at Frankie's house, which apparently has no lights in it, because, you know, this goes back to what I said at the very beginning. The lighting in this film is just almost non-existent. We just, everything's lit by moonlight. Anything that happens after 4 p.m. is lit by moonlight only. And Big Willie shows up at his house to tell him that he's having to leave. He's going on to Mickey Mack, a new manager who secured him a title fight, and he tells Frankie... I've learned everything I need to from you. Only builds to Frankie Dunn's just bitterness and anger towards life. Yeah, but it's it's such a cheap way of, of establishing that, basically, like, the movie saying, see, this is why Eastwood is the way he is, because you can't trust anybody, because this guy that he devoted eight years of his life to just turn around and stab them in the back. Mm -hmm. But not really, because when you look at it the, the right way, Eastwood was a shitty manager that was not letting his career grow. So no, Eastwood is not in the right... And if he should be angry at anyone, it should be at himself. And granted, the movie kind of lets the voice of reason, Morgan Freeman, say that, but then he gets shut down right away. Because, you know, his, his voice doesn't count. Also, it, we should point out that Frankie is learning Gaelic. It's never explained why or when he picked it up, but he's learning Gaelic for some I reason. I think Clint Eastwood was learning Gaelic at the time, and he would... You know, learn between takes. And, and they just kept the cameras it, rolling. Some of it just filtered in. At it's some like, point, he yeah. couldn't b be bothered to stop. Listen, I'm in the middle of this lesson. You just say your dialogue, and I'll be rehearsing over here. It's like Blue is the Warmest Color. They just had so much B-roll. They're like, fuck it, we'll just put it in the movie itself. Big Willie wins the title. <laughs> yes, Clint Eastwood learning Gaelic is exactly like Blue is the Warmest Color. <laughs> 
Big Willie ends up winning his title fight that is aired on HBO. How do we know it's on HBO? Morgan Freeman tells us. <laughs> yeah, after the fight, Frankie goes back to the gym to visit Scrap. He said, did you see the fight? And he said, yeah, I got HBO. <laughs> that was a terrible Morgan Freeman impression. <laughs> I'm surprised, actually, Eastwood brings him a burger. That's his peace offering. After saying some horrible things, I don't remember what he tells him, but it's one of the worst things that he says to Freeman uh, early in the movie when they're having a fight, and then the way that he, he patches things up is bringing him a cheeseburger after the fight. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that with the product placement in this movie that he didn't say where he was bringing it. I know. I brought you some Wendy's. <laughs> Good. Looks at the camera. <laughs> Good. Let's watch some HBO. <laughs> yeah, again, time frame. All fucked up. HBO... <sighs> Uh, yeah. The death of Hitler at the hands of uh, the Inglorious Bastards. Just that sped up the timeline. So <laughs> there's no point in even trying to make sense of it. Frankie reluctantly agrees to train Swank. He knows that Scrap has been training her on the side. Well, Morgan Freeman is dumb enough to give her uh, uh, the speed the bag. Speed bag right. A speed bag that Eastwood would recognize. Yeah. So, yeah, not very smart there. So he reluctantly agrees to train her, and Swank says, I'll do real good, and I'll try real hard. And, you know, it's... Your Hillary Swank is better than your Morgan Freeman. Freeman. <laughs> I've worked much harder on my Hillary Swank. This, of course, segues to montage number one of the film, in which we see the training. And, you know, it's offensive to me as someone who kind of does, like, dumber action movies and fighting movies like this, that the montage is exactly the same, but the fact that they use, like, serious music instead of, like, 80s metal, it means it's, like, good. That's what makes it different. Well, that and it's a girl uh, at, at the center of it. True. So I, Touché. I, you know, that and it being... Uh, that changes the whole dynamic. That, that's when the Academy goes, okay, yeah, this... Kickboxer, fuck it. We're going to go with this direction. Yes. Uh, didn't you say that Eastwood composed the music? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there you, go. you, you can thank him for that. He knows what they like. <laughs> yeah. Montage number one culminates with the discovery that Frankie has a daughter named Katie that he's not exactly close with, and this begins the implied father-daughter relationship between Maggie and Frankie. Yeah, it's that's what the movie wants you to believe, it, That's, but really the underpinnings of that are a lot more serious and a lot more sinister. Once Frankie starts training Maggie, then it's, the movie's really about Clint Eastwood breaking Hilary Swan. You know, like Frankie breaking Maggie, to the point where there is a moment when Maggie, who's always been very proud of herself actually says something along the lines of, well, yeah, that was a, I, I fought really well for a girl. Yeah. So she starts demeaning herself the way that Eastwood demeans her uh, on a daily basis. So it's really sad on two levels. It's just sad to see this energetic, proud character, uh, the Maggie character, come under the mind control of Clint Eastwood and just becoming uh, his puppet in a way. If you know, you're told he, that you're garbage so many times, eventually you'll start to believe it. Yeah, she becomes his new punching bag. It's Morgan Freeman is only going to last for so much longer and he lost the other guy. <laughs> so it's time for a new hobby and now I'm going to torture this girl under the pretense of helping her. So it's sad on that level, but it's also sad on the level that the movie doesn't seem to realize what it's doing. Yeah. The, the movie, it's painting this as a heartwarming story of an old man learning to love again when it's nothing but. Just as soon as we get the hinkling of a father-daughter relationship, Frankie just whores off Maggie, literally, to the first manager that he sees. He's playing mind games with her. No. It's, it's horrible. Mind games. So he just calls over this manager and says, hey, take her. And it's very uncomfortable. And we see the first fight that she has under this new leadership, and she's not doing good at all. And Clint Eastwood appears from the shadows. He's watching atop the arena. 
And, you know, he's saying, like, she's doing it all wrong. She needs to protect herself. So in between rounds, he just runs to ringside and starts coaching her. And she ditches her new manager and just goes back to Frankie halfway through this fight. I, I couldn't tell if this was supposed to be comedy or what, what this was. I mean, on one hand, there's a lot of, of comments from Eastwood side mostly. But I think also from other characters about how just, like, female boxers are freaks. And just, I guess, female boxing in general is, like, freakish. Then you say something like, oh, that's the latest freak show or yeah. whatever. So I, I think that... The fact that they just let Eastwood run up to the to stop the fight, basically, yeah. just so he can coach a fighter that's not his fighter at the time and all that. I think that was just their way of showing disrespect for female boxing. Oh, it's a circus. Anything goes. Yeah. And then also, it's just, like again, the cheap way of trying to get the audience to connect with Eastwood. Oh, look, he really cares that she's getting hurt, so he's going to... But really, I think it's just more about his pride. Like, he says at some point about the speed bag. People see you hitting that speed bag. They know it's mine, so that reflects poorly on me. Again, people know that I trained you before I pass you off to this manager, and now you're getting your ass kicked. It reflects poorly on me. So he's acting completely selfishly mm-hmm. over there. He's, it's not really that he cares about her. So he takes her back. He tells her to, you know, protect yourself at all times and gives her a little bit of advice. And, of course, she comes back and wins this fight, which leads to montage number two of the film, which is just Maggie Fitzgerald becoming, I guess, the new coming of Mike Tyson, and she's just knocking girls out left and right in the first round. That's, that becomes her thing. She's You can't blame her on one side because Eastwood... And another of those uh, horrible, cruel jabs from when they first met, he just told her that he's too old for this. He told her that it'll take four years for her to become a decent fighter. And he was lying, obviously, because (laughs) it it took five minutes, according to the movie. (laughs) And and that basically she'll be, what, 36 by the time that he can actually take on a a real fight. Mm -hmm. So you can't blame Maggie, poor victim Maggie, for just wanting to speed up as much as possible. And, and yeah, she doesn't want to wait... 10 rounds to knock someone out if she can knock them out in the first one. Mm-hmm. Montage number two culminates with Maggie getting her nose broken in a fight and Frankie resets it in the corner. It's pretty gruesome. And then he stops bleeding by sticking Q-tips mm-hmm. up her nose or something. I don't know, you're, you're the boxing expert here. Is that is that a thing? Yeah, that's a thing. It, it helps stop the bleeding and it's a way of resetting the canals too. He didn't tell her not to blow her nose though. Like that's a big thing. If you have a broken nose you shouldn't blow it because it'll make your like eye immediately swell up. One of your eyes or both of them because it just fucks the sinuses up so bad. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> we go with a broken... That was your boxing wisdom minute. <laughs> we go from broken nose Maggie to in the hospital, the emergency room, where it's become that Frankie is her new dad. When she goes back <laughs> to get checked on by the doctor, he stands up and says, I'll be right here. He's burying his soul at this point. Morgan Freeman looks uncomfortably from the side. He cuts... He can just, you know, cut just the pandering with a knife at this point. Morgan Freeman, you can see him at one point in the background just shaking his head, just being like, what did I get myself into? Montage number three, more knockouts. And then Frankie turns down a title fight for Maggie, because that's what he does as a manager. Like we said with the previous fighter, he doesn't want her to get too big. Yeah. Under the excuse of, oh no, we need to protect you, you need to protect yourself. The thing is, I don't want you to get too big to where you realize that I'm really not that great of a trainer. (laughs) So it's her 32nd birthday, Maggie's, and Scrap takes her out for, I guess, what was a was a muffin? A muffin or a cupcake? I couldn't tell. And well, you know, you gotta pay for that HBO. He can't, he can't splurge. He can't buy an entire cake. Yeah. It's at this point we learn about Scrap's wonky eye. It's one of those things that no one really wants to talk about throughout the entire film. It's my eye, isn't it? Why would we want to look at your eye? Is there something wrong with that weird eye? Mr. Campbell, you're serious about putting on a rock concert. Are you kidding? I'd give my right eye. You both realize there are certain jurisdictions you'll need to follow. Well, I'd like to think that I have an eye for details. 
fine. Then all forms and applications must be filled out in triplicate and returned to this office no later than ten working days before the event. Okay, well, we'll take these home, run through them with a fine-tooth comb, cross the T's and dot the lowercase J's. Did you notice? Uh, I mean, I knew because this is the second time I've seen the movie, so I knew that he had a bad eye, mm-hmm. but I didn't really... If the lighting had been better at all, maybe, maybe that's it. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's the reason behind the bad lighting is that you're you're seeing it because it's Morgan Freeman narrating the movie, mm-hmm. so in a way you're seeing everything through his eyes. No, his eye. So the colors are a bit askew, and the lighting is all not that good. He explains that Frankie was his cornerman in a fight, and he got cut, and just so much blood leaked into his eye. Frankie blamed himself a lot for it because he couldn't stop the bleeding. At least that's what I took away from it. Yeah. Well, he said that Frankie wasn't his manager. So Frankie, he couldn't stop the yeah, fight. Frankie couldn't stop the fight. All he could do was patch him up as best he could. Mm-hmm. And Frankie wanted the fight to, to stop, but the manager didn't, and that's how uh, Morgan Freeman lost his eye. It's a sad story. <laughs> I mean, one, it's being recounted by Morgan Freeman, so it's not very. He already has this weird relationship with Frankie, so it's possible that the way he's telling it, it's not really. It's a little biased toward mm-hmm. making Frankie sound like a torture hero. And number two, is okay. Even if this happened exactly the way that he's saying, it doesn't absolve Eastwood of any of the horrible things that he's done afterwards. He's, you know, if him being an asshole to Morgan Freeman and to Maggie and pretty much everybody else, the priest, everybody, if that comes from him not being able to save Morgan Freeman's eye, so what? That doesn't track. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, though, I, I think he may have lost his wife at some point. Don't we learn that somewhere at some point? Isn't that why he's angry at God? I, I, I don't know. I was I was too angry already to like to pick that apart. In this same sixty styles diner, which again, timeline all fucked up, uh, is Mickey Mack, the man who became Big Willie's new manager and carried him to the title, and he is interested in signing Maggie to his management, and she turns him down straight up and says that she'll never leave Frankie Dunn's camp. He, she's brainwashed. It's really sad, though, because, I mean, this whole thing was arranged by, by Morgan Freeman. He mm-hmm. brought her to that diner to eat that muffin on her birthday because he arranged everything so that Mickey Mac would see her and he would steal her. And even I think even the voiceover explains that. So it's it's Freeman's way of saying, it's too late for me, but you can still get out. Yeah. And yet, it's too late for her. Frankie's already got his, his claws in her and it's not going to let go. Again, you use the word toxic relationship and that's what it is. Yep. We go back to Frankie's home with no working lights as there are a myriad of letters under his door that are marked return to sender. We find out that he has a shoebox full of letters he's tried to send to his daughter and that have always been returned to him. Yeah, it seems like the one thing that that young priest that lets himself get riled up based with, uh, the one thing that he always tells him, his one retort is always, did you write to your daughter? Yeah. And he's because, yes. I don't know if he's telling him uh, because he really cares or he's telling him to fuck with him. Did you write to your daughter? And then you got the letter back. Because he is such a little kid. Like when he uh-huh. gets, uh, he's like, no. And then he comes up with like the best possible second grade response. Hey, how's your daughter? How's your daughter that hates you? <laughs> Does God love her? <laughs> it's the next day and we are at Maggie's tiny apartment, which is just no way for a, a young woman to live. Frankie tells her that she needs to really save her money and buy herself a nice house with cash so there's no mortgage to keep up with. He then informs her that she is going to London to fight. They're taking on a a big ranked fight next. And he has the VHS tape, again, timeline, of her opponent that they're going to watch and she says that she doesn't have a VCR or a TV. Now, what made him change his mind? Probably he caught wind of of Morgan Freeman's shenanigans trying to 
get her to take another manager, yeah. and then that made him realize, okay, I need to step up my game. So he had to give her a little more to keep her around. Two inches more on the leash. We go overseas for her next fight, and Frankie's taking the time and effort to get her a robe, uh, a fight robe to wear to the ring that says Makushla on it, and he won't tell her what it means. Nobody will tell us until the end of the movie. <laughs> Which, you know, Maggie doesn't seem to be the brightest crayon in the box, but, you know, she's going out there wearing this robe that says this word on it that she doesn't know what it means, and these people are chanting it. I mean, it could mean hippo cum for all she knows. Right, but this is before the internet. Or maybe not. We don't know. <laughs> but but assuming that's before the internet, it would be a little harder for her to... Although, apparently, there's a whole faction of Irish followers that she has that show up for every match yeah. and, and chant those words, so she could have asked one of them. But still, would you wear something on your body that you don't know what it means? But she's brainwashed by Clint Eastwood. Touché. So, of course, I wouldn't, but by that point, Eastwood could have sent her out there naked and she would have done it. Yeah. She's, that's just that's how he conditioned her. He told her, don't ask me any questions, do exactly what I say. Mm-hmm. So we find out through Morgan Freeman's narration that the tour of Europe that Maggie went on just made her into a giant star. Uh, and she comes back to you know the United States with a much bigger level of notoriety, fighting in bigger venues for more money. And it's at this point that... You know, talks begin between her and the champion of the world, Billy the Blue Bear. Not a guy. No. Not a bear. A former prostitute who's known as the dirtiest fighter in the game. But Maggie sits down for dinner with Frankie and lets him know that she took him up on his advice and bought a house, all cash, but she bought it for her mom. And Frankie says, you're a good daughter. This is where we start to realize why Maggie... Is the way she is. <laughs> and enters into these just violently toxic relationships that she does. She goes back to visit her family and takes Frankie with her. She shows her mom the new house she bought for her, and her mom and her sister are just not appreciative of all of it. In a way, the, Maggie's family belongs in Frankie's gym because they're such stereotypes. She, they would just fit right in with the angry black man and the dumb Mexican and the stupid Texas boy. Everything else. You know, these are just like white trash hillbillies. And it goes back to, again, giving Clint Eastwood an easy opponent. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's it's so easy to see him as a salvation for Maggie when the alternative are these people. You know, her family are just the worst kind of people on earth. And you maybe don't get it quite as much in this scene, but certainly later on in the movie. Yeah. They're just horrible. They're ungrateful. She casually drops uh, information that her mom is, is basically faking... She's saying that her baby, her latest baby, is still alive so she can get help from the government, well, right? Yeah, she like, has a welfare fraud. And... Uh, yeah, and then her first reaction when she gets the house is getting angry because that's probably going to cut on her welfare mm-hmm. if people find out that she's living she in that said, house. She said, why didn't you just give me the money? And poor Hillary Swank, she's just, again, she's just so used to being abused by everybody. Her response is just, I'll give you more money, don't worry. <laughs> It'll be okay. I'm Makushla. And then her mom, you know, the... The kicker, not the exclamation point, but the droll period at the end of their discussion is, you know, people are laughing at you for what you're doing. And then her sister, like, starts laughing in the background. Horrible. Horrible people. And then, you know, the big reveal is the car ride that night, of course, lit by moonlight, when Maggie reveals to Frankie, you're all that I've got, Frankie. And he says, and I'll always be here. 
sweet, sweet scene. <laughs> if you take it out of context, if you just have that scene without knowing everything else that's going on in the movie, that's kind of sweet. Yeah. They pull over for some lemon pie, and Clint Eastwood says he can now die and go to heaven because he's had this pie. He has an unhealthy obsession with homemade lemon pie that never really pays off. No. <laughs> Unless that shot, like the final shot of the movie, is him having lemon pie. I couldn't tell. In heaven. It was... <laughs> it's pretty dark for heaven. <laughs> thinking it's Morgan Freeman's vision of heaven. Yeah. Frankie takes the title fight in Vegas for Maggie, and she's all set to go one-on-one with Billy the Blue Bear. It's it's one more opportunity for Eastwood to just completely manipulate Morgan Freeman into feeling like shit. <laughs> it's like, do you want to come to Vegas? Since you've never made it yourself. <laughs> Maybe you can see what a real title fight is like. It's horrible. Freeman at least has the balls to say no. Yeah. There's a little bit of, of, of the young, rebellious man that he once was that made him stay. We switch gears with Scrap, though, as Anthony Mackie lets him know that the toilet's flooded, and this is all a big setup for Mackie to get Danger, Jay Baruchel, in the ring, and just unmercifully is beating on him. And Scrap's cleaning up the bathroom, you know, because that's what he's there to do. And then he notices, like, the commotion going on in the ring, and he goes in there to rescue Baruchel, whose face is just a bloody mess. In a way, if you take it on its own, it's, it's a kind of a shame that it's part of such a toxic movie. I keep saying the word toxic, but it's, it's true. Because this scene, I actually really like... But it also represents the good movie that's trapped inside this bad movie fighting back. Yeah. You get Freeman to have like his one moment of, of pure badassery. And then, you know, that just goes away just like because in the end the bad movie wins. Scrap comes in, saves Jay, comforts him on the side because Jay is like emotionally distraught because he thinks of himself as this great fighter. And he tells him, it's okay, kid, everyone can lose one fight. And then he takes one of his gloves and says, can I borrow this for a minute? And then, yeah, like you said, he fights back and just lays out Anthony Mackie's character. His finishing punch is with the arm, with a hand that doesn't have a glove. Yeah. And then Mackie spits a tooth out. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. This is the one moment in the movie where you just, it's okay to be happy. So we go to Vegas and it's time for the title fight. Maggie's a big star and she has a line of Irish bagpipe players play to the ring. This is the first element of pro wrestling in this. You know, it's her big WrestleMania entrance. And then we get to the fight itself and it is the dirtiest boxing fight I have ever seen. There's actually a point in it where Billy elbows her and knocks her to the ground. And when the ref is informing the judges that he's taking a point away... She punches her while she's down behind the ref's back. I'm surprised she didn't give the ref a wedgie. That's, <laughs> that's just how out of control she was. I would and thought she would have hit her with a steel chair behind the ref's back. Yeah, it's it's insane. And, and again, I think it's just a movie making fun of a female boxing. Mm-hmm. Eh, nobody really cares. <laughs> Nobody's really watching. It's also very cruel of Eastwood as a filmmaker. Because, again, we just had a pretty good high with the Morgan Freeman punch in the last scene. And then and now, now here, we're set up for probably the lowest of the lows what happens you thought some of this was depressing so far hold on you thought some of this was toxic yeah well you thought I guess what you thought was that this was a movie that was going to prove life wrong it was Mm going to be life affirming and it was going to tell you well yes all these horrible things happen but if you try hard enough you will rise to the top So, what's still up for contention is, I'm not sure, because people would later on in the film say she lost. I thought she won the fight, that the ref called it off because she was pummeling Billy so bad. Regardless of what happens, there's a halt in the action, and Maggie is celebrating on the side when Billy comes up and lays in a sucker punch on her that catches her and knocks her out. And on the way down, not Frankie, but the other cornerman had improperly placed the stool in the ring. So Maggie comes crashing down neck first on top of the stool, which just, I guess, snaps her neck in half and instantly paralyzes her. It's pretty bad. It's just so... It makes you so angry. The 
uh, like we mentioned when we're watching the movie, you never hear about anything happening to the other fighter. We could assume, just based on the way that the movie goes, that she probably went on to have a great career. The way they portray female <laughs> boxing, it's just like, yeah, and then we'll make some money off her. We'll call her the Crippler. <laughs> I mean, the movie is, is set up that in every fight, throughout the many fights, every time that that round ends, uh, Eastwood. Frankie Eastwood is the one that puts the, the little stool there on mm -hmm. the corner. He puts it facing up, and and I guess in this case it would have been Freeman maybe, and I because he asked Freeman to come along, mm -hmm. and Freeman turned him down. He's like, you'll just find somebody in Vegas, and then the guy that he found in Vegas is the guy who at that crucial moment tells he's with well, don't worry, I got this, I got the stool, <laughs> and he puts the stool right in the way of her falling, you know, then breaking her neck. It's overall a whole clusterfuck of bad circumstances, <laughs> which. Really feels like a very contrived way of getting to work. Because she could have just gotten punched and injured yeah. in a much more straightforward way. And much like Scrap turned down cornering the fight, Edward James almost turned down the role of the extra corner man because they could not have had a bigger doppelganger. Of they, they just got Vegas, Edward James almost. <laughs> they, they took him from his weekly show and just had him. So, yeah, and this is where the movie just goes... To dark places at a very, very stark pace. Maybe the bad lighting was foreshadowing how dark how the story dark was going to get. <laughs> so, Maggie wakes up in a hospital bed with tubes helping her breathe, and she is a quadriplegic. And shit is sad. But if you thought it was too sad for product placement, worry not, because Disneyland gets a pretty big shout-out. Uh, As does Universal minutes. Studios. Yeah. When yeah. her family comes to visit after putting off visiting for quite some time, it's made obvious that their time there in L.A., which is where they are, they spent visiting Disney World, or Disneyland, Disney World's in Orlando. No. And Universal Studios, as they come in wearing all the gimmicks and regalia of it, again, timeline, not important. I, yeah, I think I saw uh, Christian Bale as Batman on the t-shirt, so who knows? That was Eastwood had a crystal ball that showed him the future. Maggie's family shows up because they're wanting Maggie to sign all her assets over to them, the family. They have their lawyer with them, and Frankie's trying to stop this, and you know Maggie says this isn't your business. And this is like, it almost took on a comedic tone because it's so fucking morbid how they're like... How do you sign things? And it's like, you have to put the pen in her mouth. I know, it's horrifying because it's just like these horrible people, they're the worst ever. But it is kind of funny that, they, you know, she can't move, so they stick this pen in her mouth and, and try to, like, get her to sign like that. It, it's just horrible and... So uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. So she spits the pen out and, you know, she's disgusted as to see, like, what's going on. She says, what happened to you to her mom? She says, well, what's that supposed to mean? And Hillary Swank tells him, you know, if you come around again, I'm going to take my house back and I'm going to tell the government about your welfare fraud. So even though Hillary Swank can only move basically from the neck up, she's still, she's, she's a fighter. It's so the movie's not done with her. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> the, the movie has a little, uh, a little more breaking Hillary Swank to do. So throughout this, we see Frankie going through the stages of grief, pretty much, you know. He's going through denial and then... Eventually, he blames it on Scrap, I believe, he says. That's his first, like, I guess that's anger. Yeah. Anger is him blaming Scrap. And I honestly thought he was going to tell him, if you hadn't turned me down for Vegas. But no, he goes further back. He goes to the beginning of the movie, if you hadn't convinced me to train her. He then eventually, we see acceptance as he's alone in the church. I think he becomes closer to God through all this. But... Because this is about him. <laughs> how how typical <laughs> that Paul Hillary Swank is fighting for her life in that hospital bed. 
But let's focus on Clint Eastwood and how it affects him. We then get Maggie explaining to Frankie that she can't go on like this, that she experienced the highest of highs and this lowest of lows will not stand, and she effectively asks Frankie to kill her, to euthanize her. I mean, underlying all this is like, you've been treating me like shit the entire movie, why don't you just deliver the finishing blow? <laughs> but Frankie, cruel bastard that he is, doesn't do it. Yeah. I don't think he enjoys watching her suffer, but he's not going to let her get what she wants. Yeah, no. You will die on my terms. <laughs> let me walk away for a couple scenes and think about this. And, you know, it's almost like this last act is a different movie, because when we started this, seeing, like, all the horribly played-for-comedy racial stereotypes, I didn't think we'd see a movie where a woman tries to kill herself by biting her tongue off. And... It's horrible. It's horrible, and you know what? Maybe I would have felt a little better if if that ended up causing her death, mm -hmm. if they'd given her at least that out. We've taken everything from her. We let her rise so high just so we can pull her down as hard as possible. But the least thing we can do is we're going to let her kill herself. Mm -hmm. But no, they won't let her do it. They won't let that happen. They'll just add to her pain and still put her fate in the hands of Eastwood, who ends up doing it, honestly, I think he ends up doing it just to spite the priest. He goes and talks to the priest. He goes and seeks counsel. The priest that he's been trolling for two hours, the entire movie. So we know he doesn't take him seriously. And he just goes, he's like, what should I do? And, and the priest, of course, is going to say, don't do it. He tells him, you'll never find yourself if you do that. And Frankie's like, fuck you, I'm going to go find myself. <laughs> exactly. He knew what, what answer he was going to get. He was just looking for a way to where it, it seemed like he was doing it because he wanted to, not because Hillary Swank asked him to. Mm -hmm. He could have gone, he could have gotten like a, a better conversation out of asking the question that to an eight ball and then he probably would have had a little more figuring out to do outlook not so good <laughs> <laughs> so you know the beginning and the end is coming does he go back and talk to scrap first before he he has a conversation with scrap where he scrap tells him listen i'm gonna become the voice of the movie and tell you you did a good job <laughs> it's okay for her to die because you know she was in magazines like she said she was she 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 achieved her dreams. So, you did a good job. It's okay for her to die now. What more encouragement does Eastwood need? Freeman absolved him from his sins, and now he gets to stick it to the priest by doing it. So, so he goes back, and my God, Maggie is worse for wear. She looks like the pilot that Tom Hanks finds in Castaway that washes ashore. She just looks fucking beat up. Frankie's there, and he explains to her what he's going to do. And, of course, she can't question him at this point. So, so even if she had changed her mind, it's too late. It's at this point where he explains, I, I guess this was played for you know the tears, the pandering nature of this film. He tells her that Mo Kushla means my darling and then kisses her, and we get a single tear running down Hilary Swank's face. Shame on you, Academy. Oscar bait equals single tear. Shame on you. And then he fills a syringe full of adrenaline and pumps it into her IV as Scrap says on the narration, it was more than enough to do the job several times over. He, he walks away into the shadows. And out from the shadows. <laughs> out from the shadows, and then back into the shadows again. <laughs> I think he, he walks away thinking, this was my masterpiece. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it's time to drop the mic. <laughs> he winks at the camera, leaves, and then out of, I'm not really sure which corridor of the hospital comes Scrap, it is revealed that he was watching the entire time. So he could have saved her if he wanted to. He but, watched. But instead, you know, Scrap's probably thinking, well, you escaped, I can't. <laughs> maybe he could have, or maybe his wonky eye, he didn't, he thought he was just like hugging her or something. <laughs> oh, sweet. Oh, shit. We go back to the gym, and Scrap has said he's just waiting there for Frankie to show up. 
when Danger appears, who we hadn't seen since the Scrap earlier. Yeah, after after Scrap rescued him from the beating uh, and told him it was okay that everybody loses one, Danger ran away. Mm-hmm. And that would have been a fitting end to his story because, like I mentioned before, that kid has no business being in that gym unless he was doing Scrap's job. If he was, If you hire him, if you hire Danger to keep the place clean, all right, well, you're giving him a job, you're not wasting his time, and maybe he'll learn something on the side, but... But to keep him there as as a prospective fighter is a cruelty. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what the movie does at the end. He yeah. comes back and Freeman embraces him. And then the kid goes like, well, I I thought about what you said. And you, you're right. Everybody gets to lose one. Can I get back on the ring? <laughs> and Freeman's like, oh, of course. <laughs> that's what the movie's telling you. <laughs> so the narration wraps up the film in saying that Frankie never showed back up again. And it turns out this narration the entire time has been a letter that Morgan Freeman's scrap is writing to send to Katie. Frank. Now, what would Katie? What would make Katie not send that letter back? It probably because it wouldn't be from her dad. But who does she know? Who this guy is. I guess she'll open it just because she's curious. But it turns out that, like he he was just like proofreading it to himself, and we just used that <laughs> as the narration of the film. Like when he was done with it, I was expecting the last line of narration to him to be like, hmm, like or like just a sign of uh, sound of approval. But yeah, he sends it off to Katie. I still, I find it doubtful that she'll read the whole thing. If she hates her dad so much that she will send the letters back unread, then as soon as she starts reading and figures out what where this is going, what's she going to care about Hilary Swank's career? Yeah. <laughs> She's just going to send it back. Which is probably better because she won't find out that her dad murdered somebody. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that wraps up Million Dollar Baby. Not a single dry eye in the house. Oh, please. Impossible not to feel bad for Hilary Swank as an actress being trapped in this movie and Hilary Swank as Maggie the character being trapped by all these men torturing her and taking advantage of her just from her fan just self-fulfilling prophecy man like on her part or I don't even know if it's that it's just predispositioning she's just been told she's no good and it's it's sad it's a sad story and oh we forgot to mention that she had to have her leg amputated <laughs> I was trying to forget about that <laughs> yeah because she develops bad sores she is the only paralyzed. good character in this film and she is just tortured relentlessly it's, it's this is how I imagine like when Christians went to watch The Passion of the Christ I think that this they probably had this reaction or had this experience of like wow I'm watching this allegedly extremely likable character be tortured for two hours with no real payoff other than, hey, life sucks. Yeah. People are horrible. And sometimes the good die young and sometimes after a lot of pain. <laughs> they just got to cut that leg off after yeah. all those bed sores. Sometimes you get bed sores and your white trash family tries to steal all your money. It's, it's so unbearable that you have to bite your own tongue. <laughs> it's horrible. So the only difference is that you didn't get to see Jesus box for a good hour or so before he, he went to his journey. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, no, well, I know that it's bad that we didn't get to see Jesus Box, because yeah. that would be an awesome movie. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the way that this movie brings the, the you The Jerusalem down, Jabber would be his fight name. <laughs> He's skinny and wiry, he'd punch you, then he'll heal you, he'll punch you again. But, but in the context of this movie, it feels like such a manipulative way of telling the story. It, it'll, it, it'll, it tricks you into thinking that you're watching this, basically, this sports movie, and you know the sports formula. And you're ready for her to triumph over all these horrible things. The way that you, the reason you're sitting through all these horrible things that happened to her or that she's had to deal with, the reason you put up with with 
Eastwood's bullshit attitude towards women and towards Morgan Freeman and towards everybody else is because you know that there's going to be some comeuppance at the end mm-hmm. and then life will be okay. It's not going to be perfect, but it'll be okay. But that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Instead, the movie builds you up to a point where you're at your most vulnerable and then it just breaks your neck on that stool. And then it just keeps you there captured for another half hour while things get worse and worse. So it's And then still in the end, fortunate. Frankie's the hero. Yeah, and then at the end he's like, I killed her and now I'm done. Because earlier he tells her that he doesn't think that he'll ever retire. Mm-hmm. He says that, you know, he's still he's still a trainer that's in his blood or whatever. But then he abandons the gym because I think, like I said, that his character realizes that he'll never do any better. Yeah. This is his masterpiece. I trained her. And then in her best fight of her life, she got paralyzed, and then I killed her. How can I top that story? I can't. This is literally a horse racing movie. The horse didn't win the big fight, so he took her out back and shot her. <laughs> horrible. All that was really missing was just Clint Eastwood at the end saying, I'm finished! And then singing at the end credits. God, if only. Alright, let's move along here to some real talk about... Alright, let's do some real talk. I'm ready. I'm ready to fight you. <laughs> it's Vader! It's loud. It's offensive. It really doesn't like ACH. It's the Big Van Vader theory. That's kind of what it's about. screwed bread. They got home yeah. in the cave. For <laughs> my special teams, um, which is also my defensive coordinator and my kicker and my punter, is Kevin Nash. <laughs> <laughs> my dick's like Muhammad. It's just censored out. Um, mine's, uh, mine's like Crispin Wall. After 2007, no one's ever heard of it. it. (laughs) Dude, Casey Jones himself was the Ice Age. (laughs) (laughs) The Big Van Vader Theory, hosted by Wesley Davis. Available every week on SoundCloud. So... Not everybody loved Million Dollar Baby. There are a few people that felt uh, differently. So Stanley Kaufman from The New Republic said, The only differences between this new film and its many forebears are that the young hopeful is a woman and the finish is unforeseen. Jake Uker from F5 said, On the surface, it all seems very reasonable, but it exhibits an innate jingoism and its feminism, in quotation marks, is too thoughtless to be believed. An ungainly, smug film. And then, closing uh, with one that reflects uh, our views a little closer, I think, David Edelstein from Slate said, It's impressive in the sense that a sucker punch impresses itself on your skull. (laughs) (laughs) Good job, David. (laughs) Alright, so Million Dollar Baby was released on December 15th, 2004. Gotta get in there for that award season. Yep. Stands at a towering 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Hilary Swank won Best Actress, and Morgan Freeman surprisingly won Best Supporting Actor. That punch. Budget of $30 million, and it made $216.8 million at the box office, and it is a pandering, <laughs> a highly, highly overrated, over-decorated C-plus film. Wow. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, Alex, but I disagree with you. I actually quite liked it. <laughs> I, uh, I certainly liked it more than the first time I saw it, which was, I think I screened it? No, I, no, I actually watched it in, in theaters. Uh, after 
seeing the booth manager at the time at the theater, he screened it. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying that it was the best movie he'd ever seen in his life. Jesus. I know. <laughs> I wish I knew him better so I could tell you like what other movies he liked and we could maybe establish some sort of baseline for his taste in movies. But anyway, this was the best movie he'd ever seen back then um, in 2004. And then I went to watch it, I guess, with extremely high expectations. Uh, I really liked Mystic River, which mm. he had released, I think, the year before in 2003. And I was kind of like what I was saying uh, in the previous segment. There is something that that probably works against the movie, but yet when I think about it, in the end it, it ends up being the most remarkable thing about it, which is uh, that it starts as, a, in my opinion, really well-made sports movie. Like, not remarkable, but it's really... Uh, I don't think Clint Eastwood is a great actor, mm-hmm. but I think that the role he's that he's the role that he's okay. So we are we're, we're I am right. He's not a good actor, uh, but but the role that he's asked to play here, and especially because of the people he's surrounded with, mm-hmm. that that's just perfect. It's like he's born to play this kind of character, the angry, curmudgeonly white man, yeah. uh, old white man. When you put him him by himself in a movie, doesn't do it for me. And that's why I don't like Gran Torino. But him fighting, you know, interacting with Hilary Swank, like the character that she's playing here, was like full of energy. And yeah. that's like his complete opposite. And then being advised by the, the, the wise old black man, Morgan Freeman, that it's entertaining enough. It's, yeah. it's not subtle, but it's entertaining. And I can watch a sports movie about that and kind of have a good time. It's like I was saying that there's a lot of ugliness in the movie and if we had built up to just basically a story where Maggie becomes champion and Eastwood learns to be a little more tolerant or whatever, I'll be like, okay, that's a great movie the first time I watch it. Now, the first time I watch it, it takes that horrible turn into just complete torture and that was very off-putting and I walked out of the theater going, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) But now that I was watching it a second time, knowing where it was going, it just made the whole thing sadder because even when things were going well for Maggie even all the good things there's this underlying sadness because you know how it all turns out but it also made it better because I was not surprised I was not taken uh, uh, by surprise with this this turn and instead I was just able to appreciate that it's a risky move but it's kind of commendable how Eastwood took that what we're expecting from that kind of story and completely shifted it around on us. Because I think that's intentional. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think that he started directing a sports movie and halfway through it just went out of his hands and became a tragedy. <laughs> I think he very, very deliberately set out to to experience that arc of, oh, wow, this, this is a character that's on the rise, and then how do you deal when something that can be fixed? Once she breaks her neck, there's no fixing that. So it's still not a pleasant experience. I was looking away through the, that last third of the movie because it was just making me really uncomfortable. But I can appreciate the, the fake-out and I can appreciate where he went. Uh, I think that's what makes it memorable. I think that's probably what made a lot of people connect with it a lot because they connected to that last third of the movie where it's about Maggie wanting to die and this old guy having to, having to have feelings again. Yeah. You know, Again, it's not subtle, but I don't think that not subtle always equals bad. I think that sometimes that, that's good that's that's perfectly fine i think it's just that you and everyone else who liked this just were played by it <laughs> fell for like what you're supposed to fall for uh, okay i have a question before you yeah how do you feel about the morgan freeman scene because I, I i did mean it when i said in the previous that that's the highlight of the movie to me that's the best my favorite yeah. part of the movie yeah, it's really it's really cool it's one of those 
things with Morgan Freeman. All right, that I was downplaying that. Yes, the scene is very, very good. It's um, it's definitely like a vindication of sorts because it's you can tell like he's just been kind of shit on his whole career and stuff. And his like later life, yeah, he fucking cleans up after these punks that don't appreciate him. So, and then obviously like. You know from the beginning, if you've seen enough sports or just any movies, that, like, Anthony Mackie's so brash that he's going to get his comeuppance. But the way he did it with, like, the exposed hand and he spit out the tooth, it was really cool. Well, then, and then he said 110, because he had said that a fighter, when he was telling his, his sad story to Maggie, he tells her that every fighter has a number of fights in them. Mm-hmm. And you know when your last one happens, and I guess he... He, he thought his was 109, but yeah. it wasn't. And I really liked the dynamic between his character and Jay Baruchel's, like, and just how he took him under his wing and stuff. That said, like, Morgan Freeman's one of those weird actors that now, like, since probably, like, seven, I want to say, he's so good that you can never really tell when he's really trying and when he's not. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, He was good in this. It wasn't anything groundbreaking to me. I do think Hilary Swank is very good and deserved all the praise and accolades that she received for it. Uh, I find the film itself, though, to be not a film, but more of, like, a movie that that took a checklist of things it requires to get, like, Oscars. When I watch this, it's just, it's like a series of tropes that just allow you to get from point A to point B. And I saw it after it had won. I saw it after the fact and after all the hype and everything. And like I was telling you, my experience with Juno was I saw it before the hype wave began, so I was like, hey, that was a cute movie. And then when the hype started, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, it doesn't. If I had seen Million Dollar Baby opening weekend, I probably would have felt the same way. And then when it started winning everything, I would have been like, pump the brakes. <laughs> like, this movie's not that good. Um, I think Clint Eastwood's films in general, it'd be hard to argue that they play on the most routine type of film devices to connect with the audience. And I think this was just more intense and powerful. So that's why people were like, oh my God, like. You know, we're dealing with a quadriplegic here, and the fact that it's a woman, that's obviously a device in and of itself to use. Not that it's a bad thing. I mean, there's plenty of good movies about female empowerment. But yeah, it, like, there's no reward at all. But but there is a reward if you see her death as some sort of uh, triumph, which I don't think I did the first time. But this time I could, because I was prepared for it, I was able to appreciate the arc of she's accomplished everything she feels she's going to accomplish, and... Mm-hmm. She's ready to go, and the fact that she, the fact that she bites her tongue and tries to kill herself is horrible. But it's also, to me, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are against euthanasia that would be yeah. horrified by this and be like, "No, she deserves. She should have kept leaving." But in my mind, if you're ready to go, you're ready to go, and it's nobody's business but yours, and or your trainer <laughs> who could kill you, you know, because you can't. I would agree with that to a certain extent, like because I understand that. That is true, that she's accomplished all she thinks she's going to. The problem is, is that it's a long movie, it's over two hours, but there's too much of it that's rushed to, for me to feel that. Like, her whole fight career is rushed, and you get no sense of, like, how good she is and how good she's doing type thing. Like, uh, Well, but I think that that is, that is partly, that's a necessity, because, yeah, I don't think that she's, it's ever established that she's a great fighter, it's just that... Like to me, more... she's just like a powerful fighter. That's the right. I mean, to me, again, I'm not a boxing expert. Yeah. I don't know how plausible it is that this this woman in her early 30s were able to like win so many fights in the first round by knockout. But once you establish that, once you establish that's her gimmick, then yeah. you you just know that well, that's the reason why she's going for. I just mean in terms of like accomplishments. Like, there's not even like one shot of like her on a magazine cover or like 
buying something good for herself. Like, to me, it was just she like... She bought a house. <laughs> well, for her fucking horrible mother. So when she's talking about all these accomplishments to me, I'm just like, no, it's just kind of like four montages of you beating up a bunch of cans. Like, I didn't really get any sense of that. And then... Cans. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess there's two meanings of that. Um, I mean, I can see, because I, I, I think we both agree on this, it's just that it probably doesn't bother me as much, or it didn't bother me in this movie, that there are storytelling shortcuts that Eastwood takes. This you know, is again, a, it goes to like the stereotypes of like, oh, well, I'm going to populate the movie with stereotypes because that makes it easier to for the audience to grasp mm-hmm. what the connections are and what the airplay is. Uh, Clint Eastwood skates by a lot, and deservedly so, off the legacy that he has. A lot of people are willing to cut him a lot more slack, whether they know it or not, just because he's fucking Clint Eastwood. This is a prime example of a film that, if it had been not filled with like A-listers and like one in particular remarkable performance, it could be easily criticized for being lowest common denominator. Because the storytelling in it is that. Like, it just preys on... Like, I'm trying to think of an right, example Right, but, but, but that that argument... I, I've never fly by that argument because because you can say, well, it's not... It wouldn't be so praised if it didn't have these actors in it. But it does have the actors. And that, no, you know I understand it. Like, so I, I might have worded that uh, improperly. I'm just... I'm trying... I'm blanking, of course, on something... But you see a lot of films that do stuff like this that aren't so well done, like acting wise, that people immediately accuse of being like lowest common denominator and right taking shortcuts with like the storytelling and just preying on the audience's emotions by having like her be a girl and then bullied and then you know paralyzed. And- well, yeah, I mean, with lesser performances, with lesser performers, it wouldn't be the same movie. It would be a, a lesser movie. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you can say, I guess, that the their performances elevate the material. Yeah. But that's fine. It doesn't take away from the movie to me. I- I'm perfectly fine saying I probably wouldn't like it as much if Morgan Freeman wasn't so likable and if Hilary Swank didn't do such a great job. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is it has a lot of things already before you see it working for it. There's a lot of things that, like, a lot of people go into it already with, like, oh, Morgan Freeman and, like, Hilary Swank is oddly likable, like, like by a lot of people. <laughs> I was explaining to you when we were watching this, I did just the eternal burden of I've have seen Jimmy Fallon's impression of her so every single time I see her that's what I think of but Eastwood's character and yeah it's not he's not a bad actor it's just when you see him in certain dramatic lighting you're like it's kind of the same thing in every movie but that's also part of his charm and that works really well in like western roles and we were arguing about Gran Torino but he is literally the same character in this as he is in Gran Torino it just works more in Gran Torino in my opinion because it's more believable like the get off my lawn like <laughs> well, see I wouldn't want to get into a discussion about Gran Torino at length yeah. but to I guess to run off my point about Gran Torino which relates to, to what we're saying about Million Dollar Baby everybody else in Gran Torino is atrocious at acting like mm-hmm. because he got he got non-actors I don't know if, did you know that? Yeah, I, yeah. I read it and I'm like this makes a lot more sense <laughs> he, he just wanted non-actors so he surrounded himself by non-actors that are playing big parts I mean he has two kids at least that are supposed to carry the movie with mm-hmm. him so you don't have that, that chemistry that magic that happens between him and Morgan Freeman and him and Hilary Swank in this movie you know what and, you do have <laughs> what do you have Clint Eastwood singing at the end <laughs> <laughs> Grand Torino is another movie that ends really darkly, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, it just by then I was just annoyed. That, sidebar: Grand Torino made like bank. I remember that movie did like so well. Well, but I think that when because it, it's, I, I say I like it, but as much if not more than Million Dollar Baby is guilty of lowest common denominator oh, yeah. playing on audiences' emotions. I mentioned it last episode when we were talking about the movie that we we're going to do this one and this one, and uh, 
I mean, there was uh, uh, the second coming of Clint Eastwood that I don't remember what started. It might have started with Mystic River, maybe yeah. before then. I mean, he was always like making good, solid movies, and then at some point it became like award season for him, and mm-hmm. it was, and I guess uh, box office nirvana for him. He was just cranking them out and getting like a lot of recognition, and then at some point that faded out. But yeah, Gran Torino was also like at its apex. <laughs> this whole thing was happening, and, and we just couldn't get enough of uh, Clint Eastwood. And then he started talking to, like, empty chairs and shit. Yeah. Uh, the timeline is a big problem. And, like, someone like me who... It's the thing we always talk about. If a movie has you, things like that aren't going to bother you. Right. But when you're like me and already annoyed by a lot of the just style, like, in its whole approach, and there's just so many things that are just contradictory to one another about, like, exactly when the timeline would have been. And then also, yeah, the lighting was just quizzical. <laughs> like, I didn't... <laughs> I didn't really understand. It's it's dark because it's a dark movie, Alex. I guess so. It's... And your point was brilliant about seeing it through the wonky eye of <laughs> Scrap. It's just one of those things. It, I understand why people like it. I don't understand how it could win Best Picture other than it just... Uh, remind me, who did it go against? Went up against The Aviator, Sideways... I'm blanking on what else. Finding Neverland. Finding Neverland. Not... Eternal Sunshine. Which is, okay, well, that's... Well, Finding, Eternal Sunshine should have taken the place of Finding Neverland. And... Do you see Finding Neverland? Mm. Yeah. It's another tearjerker. It's cute. Yeah, I, I, I almost, like, when we were taking notes watching this, I almost compared it to Shakespeare in Love in terms of something that bought its <laughs> Oscar. But, uh... I would yeah. give it to the Aviator that year, probably, uh, and it's. It, well, I mean, definitely because like I said I didn't like it as much back then. I can appreciate it more now. I I think that I told you the Incredibles was the best film to come out in two thousand four, but that wasn't even nominated. I'm sure it won uh, best animated. It did. Yeah. And Eastwood, yeah, he did the score, which we were talking about earlier, which is cool. He is like it, we can joke about his acting, but so talented has gotten more so kind of with age. I feel like. Yeah, uh, that was when I was flipping through the reviews. There's one that said that this was a movie that you could clearly see it was done by a man that has made a lot of movies, and by now he has a pretty good idea of what works and what doesn't, mm-hmm. which could almost fuel your argument because he knows what works for the Academy and he knows yeah. what doesn't work for the Academy. And you know, if you've read any uh, interviews about people about what it's like working with him, they say that he doesn't like to do retakes. He'll just he knows exactly what he wants. As soon as he gets it, he's like, all right, moving on mm-hmm. and. To you, this doesn't feel like The Blind Side at all? I'm just like... Well, I haven't seen The Blind Side. Oh, okay. Uh, but I, I think that there is a, a likability to it that keeps me from, from just being annoyed at the potential emotional manipulation that yeah. it does of, of its audience. I think that it earns... Because it goes to such a dark place. It, it, I was thinking of this just now when you were talking about how, oh, well, it, it, it the audience went in already predisposed to liking it because they like Clint Eastwood, they like Morgan Freeman, they like Hilary Swank and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Well, yes, but then an hour and a half into it, something horrible happens, and that audience still has to stick with the movie for, yeah. for something that they were not... I mean... But they feel so bad for poor Hilary Swank. She was doing so good. <laughs> she was getting out of the slums. Well, yeah, but but there is a... a She's a girl. I think that... The, I would hope that they came out of that movie trying to figure something out. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I mean, I can tell you it didn't happen to me. I came out of the movie kind of angry and... That is something that... it off. Again, I can... Tell the cows come home. Just talk about how I think it is. Just like manipulation, but that is really ballsy to throw like some massive curveball in a film that's going to be so widely seen. So that's actually I was reading about it. Apparently, obviously, now that I think about it, it gave critics like a hard time writing reviews of it because like that's a spoiler. massive spoiler. Yeah, 
Yeah. I also wonder, because it's based on a book of short stories, so much like uh, the movie that I didn't like, uh, Rust and Bone, which you loved. Oh, I was actually going to bring that up, but really? I, I didn't because remember if you'd seen it or not. Yeah, yeah, no, I saw it and I didn't like it, and, oh, that, and that upset you a yeah. lot. Well, Rust and Bone is also based on a book of short stories, so it's not that this was a whole novel that was adapted into a movie, but instead they grabbed short stories and they meshed them together and hoped that they would come out. So, I wonder, because I haven't read the book, I wonder how many short stories there were and how many, uh, what the adaptation process was. So, I mean, if I had to guess, I would imagine that the Morgan Freeman story, Scrap Story, is its own. Mm-hmm. So you have this thing about the janitor that used to be a fighter and then eventually gets his final fight yeah. defending a poor kid from bullying. And then you may have the story of the the girl that wants to be trained and is too old, but the guy takes her over and, and then she turns out to be a great fighter. And then maybe there's a third story that's about a fighter that's injured and asks his trainer to, to mercy kill him. Mm-hmm. And then they decided, well, we can make it. We can, we can it's going to fuck with everybody. <laughs> Clint Eastwood put the three stories in a blender and just let her rip. Why don't you like it, Rustin Bone? A killer whale ate her leg. Because I felt that Rustin Bone, the structure, it, it didn't work to me for me. Like, the story, I, I can't even remember it very well. I just remember coming out of it thinking... Or, or it was more like, I came out of it, and I I wasn't crazy about it, and then when I read that it was an adaptation of short stories, mm-hmm. again, it clicked like, like with the other thing, yeah. and I was like, oh, that makes sense. That's why the stories didn't seem to flow. In this one, they flow, they just they just really sad, like, the, the tonal change is you, so crazy. You do like Marion Cotillard, though, right? Oh, she's great. Okay, good. No, she's she's great. She's great in that movie, she's Hell great yeah. in everything I've seen her in, yeah. I do you need to watch completely going off the track now. <laughs> uh, she was nominated for uh, Best Actress for a movie last year and she's just so good in it. She plays this depressed Dark Knight Rises? Uh, that was two years ago. Was two years ago and she didn't get nominated. Only only in our hearts. Egregiously. Yeah. Uh, oh it's two days one night. Two days one night? Yeah. She's she's just really good. You right. just have to find it and watch it and then if you like her you just be yeah. watching her. All my nitpicking aside, like I was saying earlier, and all praise be to Hilary Swank, I forgot how fucking gaunt and just rough she is at the end. Like, And yeah, the, when we watch these movies, sometimes I don't get as emotionally invested as, say, like in a theater, if I was watching it by myself and stuff, but it's really rough, especially there at the end, how bad she looks, and she's very, very solid. I've, I've been thinking I can't even figure out who Josh Gad would play in the remake. I guess he could play the Jay Baruchel part. That would be awesome. He has he has no business being in the ring, but <laughs> just gets in ridiculous shape for <laughs> his like bit role. <laughs> so ninety one percent. What would you give it? Uh, I said C plus. Like I would seventy five percent or something like that. Uh, it it has good to it. It just to me doesn't work. And then when it doesn't work, it starts annoying me because I feel like it's just trying to be something. I think a more interesting movie would would have more uh, more subtle characterization. I could picture a more impressive movie, a more interesting movie that doesn't have her family be a complete freak show of, of horrible people. So I'll say ninety percent. Ninety, right on. You did compare it to Warrior when we were watching it. I don't know <laughs> what the basis for that was. It was just the the one punch. Oh, because uh, you know Tom him. Hardy goes and knocks everybody out in the first. 30 seconds of the fight uh, for a while. So. There's a, the comparison to be drawn that one would mistake it for a sports movie when in fact like the sport or the film is just incidental to the story and that it's about something more than that. But Warriors better. Uh, 
on maybe, numerous levels. I, I would say they're both as good. Maybe Warrior's better. I would need to rewatch Warrior. Yeah. Well, that is Makushla. That is Million Dollar Baby. You said you got more out of it the second time around watching it? Yes. Yeah. Doesn't mean I want to watch it a third time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's grueling, those last 30 minutes or so. All right, so the usual stuff. We got iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe. We're uh, The Contrarians, not The Contrarians Podcast. That's right. We have a website. We are thecontrarians.com. We have an email address. We are the contrarians at gmail.com. We are on SoundCloud. Anything to plug this week? <laughs> uh, yes, I saw a great movie and I can't think of it. Oh, Mad Max. Mad Max? Alex hasn't seen it yet. Everybody no. tell him that he needs to go watch it. Yeah, apparently. Uh, check out the Big Van Vader Theory, which is also on SoundCloud. It's my friend's podcast. Friends podcast. We have any other podcasts to plug or anything like that? No, we don't even know what we're watching yeah. for the next episode, but it will be a really bad movie that we'll love. Maybe if I, if I can finally break Alex down the way that uh, Clint Eastwood broke Hillary Swank, maybe it'll be uh, the last Die Hard movie. Oh, I thought you were going to say Elizabeth Town. But... I'm, I'm switching gears. I'm like a boxer. I'm going left and right. And I said Die Hard, so you would agree to Elizabeth Town. We'll see. All right, but that is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we'll catch you next time. Engine arms and better dreams grow, heart locked in the Grand Torino. It beats a lonely rhythm all night long. It beats a lonely rhythm. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira. What are we going to do? I have no idea. But I have both. Elizabethtown and I. I do own Elizabethtown. I bought it for a dollar once. <laughs>